Part Two, Chapter Thirteen of the Secret City. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rita Boutros. The Secret City by Hugh Walpole. Part Two, Chapter Thirteen. I have no idea at all what Lawrence did during the early days of that week. He has never told me, and I've never asked him. He never, with the single exception of the afternoon at the Astoria, came near the Markoviches, and I know that was because he had now reached a stage where he did not dare trust himself to see Vera, just as she at that time did not trust herself to see him. I do not know what he thought of those first days of the revolution. I can imagine that he took it all very quietly, doing his duty and making no comment. He had, of course, his own interest in it, but it would be, I am sure, an entirely original interest, unlike anyone else's. I remember Doon once, in the long dead days, saying to me, "'It's never any use guessing what Lawrence is thinking.' When you think it's football, it's Euripides, and when you think it's Euripides, it's Marie Corelli. Of all the actors in this affair, he remains to me to the last as the most mysterious. I know that he loved Vera with the endurance of the rock, the heat of the flame, the ruthlessness of a torrent, but behind that love there sat the man himself, invisible, silent, patient, watching. He may have had Semyonov's contempt for the revolutionary idealist. He may have had Wilderling's belief in the Tsar's autocracy. He may have had Boris Grogov's enthusiasm for freedom and a general holiday. I don't know. I know nothing at all about it. I don't think that he saw much of the Wilderlings during the earlier part of the week. He himself was a great deal with the English military mission and Wilderling was with his party, whatever that might be. He could see, of course, that Wilderling was disturbed, or perhaps indignant is the right word. As though you know, he said, some dirty little boy had been pulling snooks at him. Nevertheless, the Baroness was the human link. Lawrence would see from the first, that is, from the morning of the Sunday, that she was in an agony of horror. She confided in nobody but went about as though she were watching for something, and at dinner her eyes never left her husband's face for a moment. Those evening meals must have been awful. I can imagine the dignity, the solemn heavy room with all the silver, the ceremonious old man-servant, and Wilderling himself behaving as though nothing at all were the matter. To do him all justice, he was as brave as a lion and as proud as a gladiator, and as conceited as a Prussian. On the Wednesday evening he did not return home. He telephoned that he was kept on important business. The Baroness and Lawrence had the long, slow meal together. It was almost more than Jerry could stand, having, of course, his own private tortures to face. It was as though the old lady felt that she had been deputed to support the honor of the family during her husband's absence. She must have been wild with anxiety, but she showed no sign except that her hand trembled when she raised her glass. "'What did you talk about?' I asked him. 
Oh, about anything. Theatres and her home. When she was a girl and England. Awful every minute of it. There was a moment towards the end of the meal when the good lady nearly broke down. The bell in the hall rang and there was a step. She thought it was her husband and half rose. It was, however, the Dvornik with a message of no importance. She gave a little sigh. Oh, I do wish he would come. I do wish he would come, she murmured to herself. Oh, he'll come, Lawrence reassured her. But she seemed indignant with him for having overheard her. Afterwards, sitting together desolately in the magnificent drawing-room, she became affectionately maternal. I have always wondered why Lawrence confided to me the details of their very intimate conversation. It was exactly the kind of thing he was most reticent about. She asked him about his home, his people, his ambitions. She had asked him about these things before, but to-night there was an appeal in her questions, as though she said, take my mind off that other thing help me to forget if it's only for a moment have you ever been in love she asked yes once he said was he in love now yes with someone in russia yes she hoped that he would be happy he told her that he didn't think happiness was quite the point in this particular case there were other things more important and anyway it was inevitable he had fallen in love at first sight? Yes, the very first moment. She sighed. So had she. It was, she thought, the only real way. She asked him whether it might not, after all, turn out better than he expected. No, he did not think that it could. But he didn't mind how it turned out. At least he couldn't look that far. The point was that he was in it, up to his neck, and he was never going to be out of it again. There was something boyish about that that pleased her. She put her plump hand on his knee and told him how she had first met the baron down in the south at Kiev, how grand he had looked, how, seeing her across the room full of people, he had smiled at her before he had ever spoken to her or knew her name. I was quite pretty then, she added. I have never regretted our marriage for a single moment, she said, nor, I know, has he. We hoped there would be children. She gave a pathetic little gesture. We will get away down to the south again, as soon as the troubles are over, she ended. I don't suppose he was thinking much of her. His mind was on Vera all the time. But after he had left her and lay in bed, sleepless, his mind dwelt on her affectionately, and he thought that he would like to help her. He realized quite clearly that Wilderling was in a very dangerous position but I don't think that it ever occurred to him for a moment that it would be wise for him to move to another flat. On the next day, Thursday, Lawrence did not return until the middle of the afternoon. The town was, by now, comparatively quiet again. Numbers of the police had been caught and imprisoned. Some had been shot, and others were in hiding. Most of the machine-guns shooting from the roofs had ceased. The abdication of the Tsar had already produced the second phase of the revolution, the beginning of the struggle between the provisional government and the council of workmen and soldiers' deputies, 
and this was proceeding for the moment inside the walls of the duma rather than in the streets and squares of the town lawrence returned therefore that afternoon with a strange sense of quiet and security it was almost you know as though this tommy rot about a white revolution might be true after all with this jolly old duma and their jolly old kerensky running the show of course i'd seen the nonsense about their not salutin the officers and all that but i didn't think any fellers alive would be such damn fools i might have known better he let himself into the flat and found there a death-like stillness no one about and no sound except the tickings of the large clock in the drawing-room he wandered into that horribly impressive place and suddenly sat down on the sofa with a realization of extreme physical fatigue he didn't know why he was so tired he had felt quite bobbish all the week suddenly now his limbs were like water he had a bad ache down his spine and his legs were as heavy as lead he sat in a kind of trance on that sofa he was not asleep but he was also quite certainly not awake he wondered why the place was so beastly still after all the noise there had been all the week there was no one left alive everyone dead except himself and vera 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 then he was conscious that someone was looking at him through the double doors at first he didn't realize who it was the face was so white and the figure so quiet then pulling himself together he saw that it was the old servant what is it andre he asked sitting up the old man didn't answer but came into the room carefully closing the door behind him lawrence saw that he was trembling with fright but was still endeavouring to behave with dignity Baron, Baron, he whispered, as the Lawrence were a long way from him. Paul Konstantinovitch, that was Will Drilling. He's mad. He doesn't know what he's doing. Oh, sir, stop him, stop him, or we shall all be murdered. What is he doing? asked Lawrence, standing up. In the little back room, Andre whispered, as though now he were confiding a terrible secret. Come quickly. Lawrence followed him. When he had gone a few steps down the passage, he heard suddenly a sharp, muffled report. "'What's that?' Andre came close to him, his old, seamed face white like plaster. "'He has a rifle in there,' he said. "'He's shooting at them.' Then, as Lawrence stepped up to the door of the little room that was Wilderling's dressing-room, Andre caught his arm. "'Be careful, Baron. He doesn't know what he's about.' He may not recognize you. Oh, that's all right, said Lawrence. He pushed the door open and walked in, to give for a moment his own account of it. You know that room was the rummiest thing. I'd never been into it before. I knew the old fellow was a bit of a dandy, but I never expected to see all the pots and jars and glasses there were. You'd have thought one wouldn't have noticed a thing at such a time, but you couldn't escape them. His dressing-table simply covered white round jars with pink tops, bottles of hair-oil with ribbons round the neck, manicure things, heaps of silver things, and boxes with Chinese patterns on them, and one thing open with what was mighty like rouge in it, and clothes all over the place, red silk dressing-gown with golden tassels and red leather slippers. 
I don't remember noticing any of this at the moment, but it all comes back to me as soon as I begin to think of it, and the room stank of scent. But of course it was the old man in the corner who mattered. It was, I think, very significant of Lawrence's character and his un-English-English -English tradition that the first thing that he felt was the pathos of it. No other Englishman in Petrograd would have seen that at all. Wilderling was crouched in the corner against a piece of gold Japanese embroidery. He was in the shadow, away from the window, which was pushed open sufficiently to allow the muzzle of the rifle to slip between the woodwork and the pane. The old man, his white hair disordered, his clothes dusty, and his hands grimy, crept forward just as Lawrence entered, fired down into the side street, then moved swiftly back into his corner again. He muttered to himself without ceasing in French, Chien, chien, chien. He was very hot, and he stopped for a moment to wipe the sweat from his forehead. Then he saw Lawrence. "'What do you want?' he asked, as though he didn't recognize him. Lawrence moved down the side of the room, avoiding the window. He touched the little man's arm. "'I say, you know,' he said, "'this won't do.' Wilderling smelt of gunpowder, and he was breathing hard, as though he had been running desperately. He quivered when Lawrence touched him. "'Go away,' he said. "'You mustn't come here. "'I'll get them yet. "'I tell you I'll get them yet.' I tell you I'll get them. Let them dare. Chien! Chien! He jerked his rifle away from the window and began with trembling fingers to load it again. Lawrence gripped his arm. When I did that, he said, it felt as though there wasn't an arm there at all, but just a bone which I could break if I pressed a bit harder. Come away, he said, you damn fool. Don't you see that it's hopeless? and I'd always been so respectful to him, he added in parenthesis. Wilderling hissed at him, saying no words, just drawing in his breath. I've got two of them, he whispered suddenly. I'll get them all. Then a bullet crashed through the window, burying itself in the opposite wall. After that, things happened so quickly that it was impossible to say in what order they occurred. There was suddenly a tremendous noise in the flat, it was just as though the whole place was going to tumble about our ears. All the pots and bottles began to jump about, and then another bullet came through, landed on the dressing-table, and smashed everything. The looking-glass crashed, and the hair-oil was all over the place. I rushed out to see what was happening in the hall. What was happening was that the soldiers had broken the hall door in. Lawrence saw then a horrible thing. One of the men rushed forward and stuck André, who was standing, paralyzed by the drawing-room door, in the stomach. The old man cried out, just like a shot rabbit, and stood there for what seemed ages, with the blood pouring out of his middle. That finished Lawrence. He rushed forward, and they would certainly have stuck him, too, if someone hadn't cried out, "'Look out! He's an Englishman! An Anglicanin! I know him!' After that, for a time, he was uncertain of anything. He struggled, he was held. He heard noises around him, shouts or murmurs or sighs, that didn't seem to him to be connected with anything human. He could not have said where he was, nor what he was doing. 
then quite suddenly everything cleared he came to himself with a consciousness of that utter weariness that he had felt before he was able to visualize the scene to take it all in but as a distant spectator it was like nothing so much as watching a cinematograph he told me he could do nothing he was held by three soldiers who apparently wished him to be a witness of the whole affair Andre's body lay there, huddled up in a pool of drying blood that glistened under the electric light. One of his legs was bent crookedly under him, and Lawrence had a strange mad impulse to thrust his way forward and put it straight. It was then, with a horrible sickly feeling, exactly like a blow in the stomach, that he realized that the baroness was there she was standing quite alone at the entrance of the hall looking at the soldiers who were about eight in number he heard her say what's happened who are you and then in a sharper more urgent voice where's my husband then she saw andre she gave a sharp little cry moved forward towards him and stopped i don't know what she did then said lawrence i think she suddenly began to run down the passage i know she was crying paul 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 i never saw her again the officer an elderly kindly-looking man like a doctor or a lawyer i am trying to give every possible detail because i think it important then came up to lawrence and asked him some questions what was his name jeremy ralph lawrence he was an englishman yes working at the british embassy no at the british military mission he was officer yes in the british army yes he had fought for two years in france he had been lodging with baron wilderling yes ever since he came to russia the officer nodded his head they knew about him had full information a friend of his a mr boris grogoff had spoken of him the officer was then very polite told him that they regretted extremely the inconvenience and discomfort to which he might be put but that they must detain him until this affair was concluded which will be very soon added the officer he also added that he wished lawrence to be a witness of what occurred so that he should see that under the new regime in russia everything was just and straightforward i tried to tell him said lawrence to me that wilderling was off his head i hadn't the least hope of course it was all quite clear and at such a time quite just wilderling had been shooting them out of his window the officer listened very politely but when i had finished he only shook his head that was their affair he said it was then that i realized wilderling he was standing quite close to me. He had obviously been struggling a bit, because his shirt was all torn, and you could see his chest. He kept moving his hand and trying to pull his shirt over. It was his only movement. He was as straight as a dart, and except for the motion of his hand, as still as a statue, standing between the soldiers, looking directly in front of him. He had been mad in that other room, quite dotty, he was as sane as anything now, grave and serious and rather ironical, just as he always looked. Well, it was at that moment when I saw him there that I thought of Vera. I had been thinking of her all the time, of course, 
I had been thinking of nothing else for weeks. But that moment there in the hall settled me. Callous, wasn't it? I ought to have been thinking only of Wilderling and his poor old wife. After all, they'd been awfully good to me. She'd been almost like a mother all the time. But there it was. It came over me like a storm. I'd been fighting for nights and days and days and nights not to go to her, fighting like hell, trying to play the game the sentimentalists would call it. I suppose seeing the old man there and knowing what they were going to do to him settled it. It was a sudden conviction, like a blow, that all this thing was real, that they weren't playing at it, that anyone in the town was as near death as winking. And so there it was, Vera. I'd got to get to her, at once, and never leave her again until she was safe. I'd got to get to her. I'd got to get to her. I'd got to get to her. Nothing else mattered. Not Wilderling's death, nor mine either, except that if I was dead, I'd be out of it and wouldn't be able to help her. They talk about men with one idea. From that moment I had only one idea in all the world. I don't know that I've had any other since. They talk about scruples, moralities, traditions. They're all right, but they're just our moments in life when they simply don't count at all. Vera was in danger. Well, that was all that mattered. The officer said something to Wilderling. I heard Wilderling answer, You're rebels against His Majesty. I wish I'd shot more of you. Fine old boy, you know, whatever way you look at it. They moved him forward then. He went quite willingly, without any kind of resistance. They motioned to me to follow. We walked out of the flat down the stairs, no one saying a word. We went out onto the quay. There was no one there. They stood him up against the wall, facing the river. It was dark, and when he was against the wall, he seemed to vanish. Only I got one kind of gesture, a sort of farewell, you know, his gray hair waving in the breeze from the river. There was a report, and it was as though a piece of the wall slowly unsettled itself and fell forward. No sound except the report. Oh, he was a fine old boy. The officer came up to me and said very politely, You are free now, sir and something about regretting incivility, and something, I think, about them perhaps wanting me again to give some sort of evidence. Very polite he was. I was mad, I suppose. I don't know. I believe I said something to him about Vera, which, of course, he didn't understand. I know I wanted to run like hell to Vera to see that she was safe, but I didn't. I walked off as slowly as anything. It was awful. They'd been so good to me, and yet I wasn't thinking of Wilderling at all. End of Part 2 Chapter 13